All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, truth is a gift from your hand. We pray that that gift would be manifested here. Not only that we would have a knowledge of the truth, but that you would unite us in contending for the faith, for that body of truth and pattern of sound words that you've delivered once to the saints, that repository of divine revelation that we must steward and to which we have been entrusted. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace as we study these teachings, that you would give us a strong and vital spiritual and theological immune system that we would attack all that is foreign and contrary and strange and opposed to your word of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our third and hopefully final lecture on the views of Norman Shepherd. We've introduced and characterized those views multiple times, even in our introductory lectures, and so we're not going to repeat ourselves on that. But Norman Shepherd represents in some ways, the background and the foundation of the Federal Vision movement, his views on justification, his views on church history and the development of theology within the Reformed Church over the years, form a basis upon which then the Federal Vision comes to fruition in the early 2000s. We've already looked at his view of justification. We've also looked at his view of the imputation of Christ's obedience and how he misrepresents the development of that doctrine among the early reformers and among the major creeds and confessions of the Reformed Church. So we've seen thus far that his view of justification is inherently legalistic, that he incorporates faithful obedience into the definition of justifying faith, and he speaks of Abraham being justified according to the imputation of Abraham's faith, and he says that's a pattern for us, that, that the, what is imputed in justification is our faith, and we've seen how that, once again, is legalistic and uh, utterly futile in terms of us obtaining or attaining the perfect righteousness required for justification. And we've seen how he limits the scope of any imputation of Christ's obedience, limiting it to the passive obedience or the suffering and vicarious atonement of Christ as opposed to the active preceptive obedience of Christ, positively fulfilling the law and thereby securing our eternal life and acceptance with God. So we've seen that he is utterly untrustworthy and even heretical at times, but today we're going to look at the antinomian character of his views. You might say, well, he's incorporating works into justification. He's denying the, the fullness of the work of Christ for believers in terms of his view of imputation. And therefore, Norman Shepherd is a legalist. And that would be true, but it's also the case that he is antinomian. As Rabbi Duncan famously said, there is only one heresy, and that is antinomianism. What is antinomianism? Well, it means opposition to the namas, the law of God. So you can think of examples of just stark antinomianism according to that, just the, uh, the etymology of the term here, that someone who is opposed to obeying God's law, someone who dilutes the importance of obedience to God's law in various aspects of the Christian life, particularly sanctification. Historically, antinomianism has been used as a term in previous centuries to describe what we today call hyper-Calvinism. So, hyper-Calvinism in its effort to really overemphasize God's decretal will, His sovereign will from all eternity, 
and thereby sort of crowd out and underemphasize God's revealed will, his commandments of what we ought to do, that historically has been called antinomianism. Today we call it hyper-Calvinism, but it's, it's really one and the same. It's, it's any effort to undermine or dilute the importance of God's law in the Christian life. And according to Rabbi Duncan, there is only one heresy, and that is antinomianism. And what he means by that is ultimately, as our larger catechism question five says, I think the shorter says the same thing, uh, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. If you look at the language there, it's clear that biblical doctrine is something that man is to believe. So biblical doctrine actually falls under the umbrella of the duty that God requires of man because God requires that we believe biblical doctrine. The law requires us to believe everything God says. It requires us to believe the gospel. And therefore, when we don't believe the gospel, that's the sin of unbelief. Sin is lawlessness. Unbelief of any biblical doctrine is a sin. Undermining the gospel and tweaking the gospel that God has revealed and commanded us to believe is a violation of the law of God. And it's a sin for that reason. It's also the case that our duties are, can be classified under the umbrella of doctrine. If you look at Titus, really the whole book, but Titus 2, it speaks of that which is in accord with sound doctrine. So our duty flows from the doctrine. So these two things, doctrine and duty, work together. But when we undermine biblical doctrine, we're violating biblical duty. And so when we say there's only one heresy, antinomianism, it means that legalism, by tweaking and perverting the gospel that, we're, that the law commands us to believe, legalism is antinomianism. Legalism is a sin because it violates God's law and undermines the gospel which God's law word reveals. Now, we see this in Romans 10 verse 3, speaking of the Jews, for they, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's Paul's description of their unbelief, their perversion of the gospel into a gospel of ceremonial and moral good works, justification by works. Their heretical legalistic views represent a refusal to submit to the righteousness of God, to submit to the gospel of God's righteousness through Christ that God's law says, you must believe this. So, we shouldn't be surprised that Norman Shepard, having shown himself willing to undermine and tweak and sort of uh, rearrange the gospel, that he would then find himself, you know, he, he just can't, can't keep from then reaching out his hand to rearrange the law. And this is true of the, the Jews, the Pharisees, of course. They perverted the gospel into a gospel of works. And then when the law became inconvenient for them, well, they'd already established that pattern in their legalism. So then they continued in undermining the moral precepts of the law that God's word reveals. So, I mean, the bottom line is if you're not going to submit to the gospel, you're not going to submit to the law either. So legalism is inherently antinomian, as is all heresy. There's only one heresy, and that is antinomianism. Now, in our discussion today, we're going to be considering how Norman Shepard adopts an antinomian perspective on issues of personal assurance, self-examination, the criteria for a credible profession of faith in the life of the church, and the way in which we do evangelism. He's, he's going to undermine the role of Christian obedience and law-keeping in those aspects of the Christian life and of the Christian church. But as we've done in the previous lessons, I want us to look at the biblical Reformed confessional view first and then see how he departs from it. So, two categories that uh, you can see there on your handout. First, the inward marks of grace 
And secondly, the visible fruits of grace. These are two very important categories in Christian doctrine and Christian life. So when we think of the inward marks of grace, we're thinking of biblical characteristics of a true Christian which may be discerned by the individual for the purpose of growing in personal assurance. So there is a fundamental assurance that comes along with faith, the seed of assurance that's inherent in faith. And so when we look to Christ presented in the promises, we cling to Christ and that gives us hope. And, and there's a seed of assurance there. But in order to grow in assurance, once we come to realize, wait, there's a lot of people that claim to believe, but there are all these spurious, counterfeit forms of faith, temporary faith, uh, as in the parable of the sower, dead faith, demonic faith, as in James chapter 2, the, the believer comes to realize, wait, I need to examine myself to grow in assurance to make sure that my faith fits the biblical description of true and saving faith. And so uh, we're to look for the inward marks of grace, these biblical characteristics of a true Christian, uh, which may be discerned by the individual. So this is introspective, not morbid introspection, but responsible biblical introspection, examining ourselves for those characteristics as we can discern them in our own hearts. And, and these things, as we'll see in a moment, are defined by Scripture. Now, on the other hand, we have the visible fruits of grace. These are biblical characteristics of a true Christian which may be discerned by church overseers for the purpose of identifying a credible profession of faith pursuant to communicant membership. So the elders of the church have a duty to receive someone's profession of faith and examine them and look for these biblical characteristics of a true Christian and, and, and evaluate the, the profession of faith the person makes, what they believe, what they say they believe, and the corresponding fruit in their life. And the, the uh, visible fruits of grace are different from the inward marks of grace in that certain things are only knowable by the person himself or herself. In examine, you, know, you can examine your heart in a way the elders cannot. So there, there are criteria for you to examine yourself in the depths of your heart and as the Word of God, which is living and active, reveals the inner nuances of your motives and these kinds of things, you can evaluate yourself biblically in a way the elders cannot. And yet the elders have a duty to evaluate what they can evaluate, which is the outward fruit that is visible to them, your profession and your corresponding lifestyle. And so the manner of inquiry as we follow our chart, the manner of inquiry for the inward marks of grace would be self-examination of one's heart and life. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. But in terms of the visible fruits of grace, it involves an ecclesiastical evaluation, a church evaluation of your profession and your life or your lifestyle. And Jesus urges us and encourages us in this regard. Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You say, okay, well, how are we going to figure out who these guys are? Because outwardly, they look like sheep. You will know them by their fruits. Notice it's not the wolves that are to examine themselves, although certainly we'd urge everyone to do that, but you the person who's distinct from the person under examination, you will be able to know them by their fruits. And he says, Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So the church, in evaluating somebody's profession and lifestyle, is to look for visible fruits of grace, not to invent visible fruits of grace or to exaggerate them but to, or to, to dilute them, but to basically follow the scriptural pattern. And you look at John the Baptist's ministry, Luke 3, verse 8 and following, Therefore, bear fruits 
worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then the people are saying, okay, what does this mean practically, visibly? How does this affect my life? What shall we do then? And then he gives practical examples. Somebody's unselfishness or generosity. He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. In any event, the tax collectors and the soldiers, and they all come and he gives them examples of what biblical, visible fruitfulness would look like. And if you take the opposite of that, you could see patterns in somebody's lifestyle that would cause the elders to have hesitation in terms of granting privileges of communicant membership. And so the manner of inquiry is different. One is self-examination. The other is an outward church examination. As I've already alluded to, the objective standard for the inward marks of grace must be the scriptures. It can't be mysticism or, you know, a warm, fuzzy feeling that somebody has. But 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you, in other words, a book of the Bible, inspired scripture, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So John writes this epistle, 1 John, and this would be the classic text or passage of Scripture, the entire epistle, on the inward marks of grace. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren, we believe on the Son of God, we keep God's commandments, so on and so forth. We love our brother. All of those, these things are, are fleshed out here, and that's what we need to do, whether it's First John or insights we glean from other books of the Bible. We can't examine ourselves according to something that is man-made or self-made, but according only to Scripture. And the same is true for elders examining people for communicant membership. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, and 19, I will build my church. It's Jesus' church. He owns it, and He gives to the church the keys of the kingdom to open and close, among other things, privileges of communicant membership, membership in the church, baptizing and... and, and uh, permitting people to come to the table of the Lord. The keys of the kingdom are given to the apostles and then in chapter 18 to the elders of the church. And we're told here that what is bound on earth, and the literal Greek tense is, shall have been bound in heaven. So the authority of the church to examine people and turn some away and receive some is defined by heaven. The authority of, church, of the church is a declarative authority, a ministerial authority, not a legislative authority. We, we don't write or legislate the terms of communicant membership. We apply the ones that heaven has revealed, and then when we act upon them, we have the authority of heaven because we didn't come up with these. Heaven did. Jesus did. And you can see in the early church, in Acts 2.47, that when people professed their faith and were added to the church, Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. The Lord added them to the church. Why? Because He worked through His church officers with biblical terms of admission to the covenant community. Scripture alone. And then, it's interesting, in Acts 10, verse 47... As the Apostle Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his household, Acts 10, verse 47, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we? Notice he doesn't say, can anyone forbid them from following me down to the river? Actually, he's saying we're going to bring the water to them. But anyway, in terms of the mode of baptism. But can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we. Now, there are some differences here versus what we see today in terms of some of the extraordinary manifestations of the Spirit, but the principle still applies. If somebody meets the biblical 
objective criteria for a credible profession of faith showing outward fruits of the Spirit in their life, though we don't have infallible judgment, nevertheless, we ought not to forbid baptism or any privilege of the church to those who meet the criteria that God has revealed that shows uh, that's a, a faithful and reliable mechanism for identifying the work of the Spirit. So when you see the criteria met, whether positively for receiving a member or negatively for disciplining or even excommunicating someone, who can forbid? We ought not to think that as elders we have some kind of uh, veto power on the criteria that God has revealed. In addition, we can look at the kind of criteria in terms of the inward marks of grace the kind or type of criteria is inward persuasion. Inward persuasion. And you can see in Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it's the heart, it's the conscience, it's that inward persuasion, full assurance of faith in the heart and in the conscience. In terms of visible fruits of grace, it's outward credibility. And so when Jesus reveals something about the constituency, the makeup of His kingdom in Matthew 13 with the parable of the wheat and the tares, He tells us in uh, Matthew 13, verse 28, let me just, let me read the parable here, verse 24, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. By the way, tares, that's just one type of weed, okay? No doubt there are lots of kinds of weeds that are going to be in a wheat field. The tare is a specific type of weed that looks, and in English sounds, like wheat. It's difficult to distinguish, Jesus is not just saying there are, all kind, you know, there are all kinds of weeds, but there's a specific type of weed that would sabotage the operation because the weed looks like wheat until the very last minute at the harvest. And so you're faced with this uh, difficulty of saying, well, it looks like wheat, but we know there's some tares, and you know, how do we handle this? And... Verse 26, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now they're not saying that all the tares have this uh, sort of, um, you know, that they're all pink and, and the wheat is green or something like that. They're not easily distinguishable, but they appear in the sense that, oh, there's one and there's one. And therefore, they must be all over the place, interspersed with the wheat. And so it appears that they're there, but it's really difficult to figure out which, which ones are which. And of course, this happens in the church. People fall away, revealing that not everybody in the church is saved. And then it's like, okay, well, now how do we deal with the people that are left? Because they're, they're, it's a mixed multitude, and some people are unsaved, and they look like they're saved, How do we deal with this? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us to then go and gather them up? In other words, early in the process, just, you know, do the best we can to distinguish them and uproot the tares as we perceive them. But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them, so on and so forth. So Jesus is saying at a certain point, it will become evident. Now, that could be the final judgment in some cases. Other cases, it could be the apostasy where somebody's inner unregenerate nature comes out and, and, they, and it's obvious and they need to be disciplined. But it's outward credibility. So if somebody has the marks of the visible fruits of grace, like Judas did, in the sense that when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all point to Judas that they'd been living with day in and day out for three plus years. They didn't know. And there are people like Demas 
who was unconverted. Paul chose him to be a fellow minister in a missionary journey. So there are tares in the wheat. We judge based on visible fruits of grace, and we don't uproot until either in this life or, of course, in the world to come, it is just obvious by way of the objective criteria that the person is not converted. But it's not the job of the elders to go beyond outward credibility and say, we, we can judge the heart and, oh, I had a real strong feeling when this person professed their faith, but when that person did, I just didn't have that, that feeling, that mystical feeling, so maybe they're not saved. That's not the job of the elders to be doing that. Okay, uh, the maximum degree of certainty, maximum degree of certainty for inward marks of grace would be infallible full assurance. We deny the teaching of, of Roman Catholics that it's impossible to have infallible full assurance. And you can look at Colossians 2 verse 2 and Hebrews 6 verse 11 for references to the believer's full assurance. We may not always be there, but we have the capacity with the inward marks of grace, believing the gospel, seeing the work of the Spirit in our hearts and lives, and the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we're children of God, we can gain infallible full assurance and make our calling and election sure individually. But for the visible fruits of grace and the church's evaluation, it cannot go beyond a fallible, charitable confidence. And you can see in 1 Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. This is right after he said, by the way, don't hastily ordain people to ministry. So he's dealing with evaluating people's character. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So there's a give and take here as to what's evident when and how. So we, we can't have infallible assurance of someone's election based upon their credible profession of faith, and yet we have a charitable judgment. You can see the uh, charitable confidence that Paul has, Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. Verse 11, he talks about the individuals having full assurance, but here is his assurance concerning them. Verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So we're going to warn you of the danger of apostasy. But we also see that you meet the visible criteria of the fruits of grace. So we're confident of better things. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, visible fruits, and do minister or sorry, minister to the saints and do minister. So you, you can see there's a good deal of, of uh, confidence there. Also, the relevant status of classification for the inward marks of grace or the relevant status or classification, as you examine yourself, it's to grow in assurance of salvation, making your calling and election sure, Second Peter 1.10, and examine yourself for communion, examining, repenting, coming to the Lord's table with a clear conscience, let a man examine himself, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and following. In terms of the visible fruits of grace, it's for a credible profession of faith, James chapter 2, 14 through 19, you, you claim to have faith, but I'm going to show you my faith by my works, and so how do we adjudicate this dispute? Who's saved and who isn't? Well, the church can't decide that, but they can look for the works that testify to the veracity and genuineness of a profession of faith. We can look to see like Abraham's profession of faith was justified, vindicated by his good works, James 2. Also, the church examines in terms of eligibility for communion. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 5 and eligibility for restoration from discipline where we have to determine if there is a fruit of repentance based on the outward fruit, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, and 7, 10 through 11. You can see the inward marks of grace described in the Westminster Standards, Confession of Faith 18.2 says, This certainty is an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, 
the inward evidences of those graces. Uh, this is, so the first one is the divine truth of the promises. Second, the inward evidences of those graces unto which these promises are made. So the fruit in your life. Thirdly, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And there's controversy over the third one as to whether it's not just the first and the second expounded upon, but we don't have time for that. In terms of the visible fruits of grace, you can see Westminster Confession 25.2, the visible church consists of all those throughout the whole world that profess the true religion and of their children. And then larger catechism 173, such as are found to be ignorant or scandalous, notwithstanding their profession of faith and desire to come to the Lord's Supper, may and ought to be kept from that sacrament by the power which Christ hath left in His church until they receive instruction and manifest their reformation. Again, manifest, visible fruits of grace. Now, I know I've spent most of my time on the biblical doctrine, the Reformed confessional doctrine, but I think that'll help us to go for some yardage here on shepherd's antinomian view. Let's let's look at our first point. Shepherd's doctrine of justification logically leads to a consideration of personal assurance, self-examination, and the inward marks of grace to determine if one's lifestyle is faithful enough, obedient enough, and repentant enough to satisfy the requirement for justification. Now, this is obvious. If Shepard's saying part of your justification involves your faithful obedience, then you ask your, the question, okay, in order to know if I'm justified, am I faithful enough? Am I obedient enough? Am I repentant enough? So obviously, his legalistic view forces us to examine ourselves, or at least logically, that would be the next question. Uh, I have a number of quotes here. Let me just read one of them, the first one. Quote, The point in all of this is that Jesus makes justification contingent upon obedience. The Lord justifies the righteous and condemns the wicked. Jesus justifies the sinner who confesses his sin and repents of it. So Shepherd acknowledges that we all sin. He's saying some people have enough obedience to be justified and some do not. So logically, we would start to think about inward marks of grace and visible fruits of grace. That's just the logical next step. Now let's move to our second point. Shepherd's doctrine of justification logically leads to a consideration of the visible fruits of grace as they relate to the church's criteria for identifying a credible profession of faith. And I think I already kind of just said this, but but it's not just the inward marks of grace. I'm going to examine myself to see if I'm obedient enough to be justified in Shepherd's system. But if, if I hold to his system, I'm also going to be thinking about uh, what are the visible fruits of grace that the church should be looking for? Because his whole diatribe is, you know, we have all these faithless, uh, disobedient people claiming to be Christians and living in sin, and the church has this quasi-antinomian gospel of, you know, he raises these nuanced objections to justification by faith alone. Okay, Dr. Shepherd, well then logically we should be talking about what are the visible fruits of grace that the church should be looking for to identify a credible profession of faith. So I think that's a fair reading of Shepherd. And again, listen to what he says here. Quote, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes from the perspective of observable covenant reality and concludes from the visible faith and sanctity of the Ephesians that they are the elect of God. He addresses them as such and encourages them to think of themselves as elect. A reformed pastor can and must do the same today. He goes on, There is nothing unfortunate about the fact that we do not have insight into the eternal decree of God and therefore cannot make infallible judgments about the elect or reprobate state of people. He goes on, Paul is right to address the saints and faithful in Ephesus as elect, and at the same time, he is right to warn them against apostasy. End quote. And we would not disagree with what he says there. What he says there is true. And so he's even acknowledging that his view of justification logically leads to a consideration of, okay, what is the visible faith and sanctity that is required to vindicate a profession of faith? Now, where we would differ with Shepard is we would simply say 
that that visible fruit of grace is the evidence that somebody is a justified believer, whereas he's saying it's not just visible evidence, it's actually part of their justification in the ways that we talked about in the previous lectures. Uh, Again, in the previous quote I just gave you, Jesus makes justification contingent upon obedience. So we would differ with him there, but we wholeheartedly agree that the question of examining myself and the church examining my profession and the criteria for both of these things is now in play. Third point. Surprisingly, Shepard, instead of going in the direction of our confession of faith and the Scripture passages we read, surprisingly, he opts to misrepresent and reject the confessional marks and fruits of grace as applied to personal assurance, credible professions of faith, and evangelism of the lost. So here's where we find him. Even though he acknowledges these things, now he just veers in a totally different, almost schizophrenic direction. Listen to this quote. Is it possible to have assurance of my salvation from condemnation? The Roman church answered the reformers by saying no, because no one ever knows whether he will be in a state of grace at the hour of his death. So in other words, they could fall away. So Rome says, as William Cunningham famously said, that there's no worse doctrine than that in the church of Rome, that you can't have assurance except by extraordinary revelation. Shepherd goes on, the only exceptions are those who die by martyrdom and those who receive some special revelation from the Lord. The Puritans, says Shepherd, a century later also answered no. Now that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a slander. We just read it from the confession that was written by the Puritans a century later. But anyway, the, the Puritans a century later also answered no. Unless you are by some unusual experience of grace corresponding to Rome's idea of special revelation, slander, slander. Or unless you have the good works to prove that you are actually justified. Okay, let's just keep reading here before we lose our tempers. Um, They taught that we are justified by grace through faith alone and not by works, but then proceeded to make works a basis for assurance. But just as we cannot be justified on the ground of our sin-stained works, so also we cannot really be assured on the ground of our sin-stained works. This is why assurance became as problematic for the Puritans as it was for Rome. End quote. So amazingly, Shepard says in the previous lessons, and even in the quote I read earlier, that our justification hinges on our own obedience. But now when it comes to examining our own heart and life and following out something of the implications of these things, now he runs and hides in some sort of doctrine of grace by faith. Now he's saying, well, our sin-stained works can't factor into our assurance. And if you say that they can, then you're, you're just like going back to Rome because it's some special mystical criteria or some works-based system that's going to burden God's people with self-examination. But what he's saying here is totally hypocritical and inconsistent because he's been advocating a justification by faithful obedience the whole time. And now when it comes to the implication that I need to examine my faithful obedience, he's nowhere to be found. And he lies against the Puritans who we already read say that, in fact, It's ordinary for Christians to have assurance. Every Christian has a seed of assurance and it grows and uh, at times we can even attain to the heights of full assurance. But the Puritans, of course you can find a stray Puritan anywhere, but as a whole, the Puritans wrote numerous treatises on assurance and they all emphasize, uh, at least the ones I've read, the, the biblical criteria that's set forth in our standards looking to the promise by faith, seeing the work of the Spirit in our lives, and then there's dispute over the testimony of the Spirit. But here you have shepherd veering away from works and law-keeping as a way of showing that I'm truly saved. Now, the irony here is that he tries to make James chapter 2 the headquarters of his whole theology. And yet, what's the point of James chapter 2? I'll show you my faith by my works, the outward evidence that I have faith. So James 2 is actually addressing this issue 
And we can see here perhaps another reason why Shepherd reinterprets James 2. It's not just to promote legalism. It's to escape the implication that you might have to examine yourself and the church might have to examine your life to vindicate your profession of faith. Uh, So many things to object here. Next quote. When evangelism is oriented to regeneration as the point of transition. In other words, we evangelize people till we see something of a response to the gospel and they, then we begin discipling them. And that's not always an obvious point of transition, but it's the general paradigm you, that you see in the Scriptures, uh, even with the Apostle Paul and Ananias and so on. When evangelism is oriented to regeneration as the point of transition, it is necessary for the evangelist or pastor to begin by making some kind of judgment with respect to the spiritual condition of those whom he is addressing. If they are perceived to be regenerate, there is no need to say things that would lead to their regeneration. These people must be addressed differently from those who are not perceived to be regenerate. So he's critiquing this. He's saying we should not have a paradigm that says evangelize, 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 look for some response to the gospel, and then teach people how to bring forth the grateful obedience as a fruit of salvation. And he misrepresents it, of course. I can tell you in pastoral counseling, I counsel people that profess Christ and show something of a visible fruit, but they're dealing with a sin. And if you'd sit in on one of those meetings, I'm bringing passages that say, that say the sin you're committing leads to hell, warning them about the danger of hell fire, and yet at the same time encouraging them to repent based upon God's grace to them. In other words, you, you address both. You don't assume, oh, they're definitely regenerate or unregenerate, but there is a basic paradigm of you're going to focus more on the personal discipleship and edification when you've first seen a response to the gospel. So he's, a, he's attacking this. Shepherd quote, problems with the method of regeneration evangelism emerge right at the start. Judgments have to be made that belong properly and exclusively in the hands of God. No person can judge the heart of another person. To presume to do so is to yield again to the primal temptation to be as God. This objection is valid even when a judgment is hedged by the acknowledgement that final judgment belongs to God and that what is attempted is only an approximation of God's judgment. No one should even attempt to approximate God's judgment, end quote. So, whatever happened to Paul, who concludes from the visible faith and sanctity of the, the Ephesians that they're elect, and though it's not infallible, he has every right to say that, and pastors should do the same. See, Shepherd's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying not only we shouldn't judge the heart as if we could read the heart, but he's saying that church leaders ought not to make any type of judgment up, upon the basis of a person's fruit or lifestyle and that we shouldn't make these judgments and say oh now the person's responded to the gospel and shown some fruit so we're going to address them in a slightly different way he's rejecting the idea that we should look for that transition in our evangelism Uh, i wonder what he's going to put in place of regeneration no questions till the end sorry Um, quote shepherd when Jesus spoke of the new birth and compared the Spirit's operation to the wind, John 3.8, he made clear that regeneration is a secret work of God and therefore cannot be used by us as a point of orientation for evangelism, end quote. Now that's true, but again, we can see the fruits of regeneration. And Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. Uh, if we're going to be quoting Jesus. Uh, we can quote that as well. Again, Shepherd quote, once the judgment is made that a given person, he, here he's trying to represent the way our church operates and criticize it. He says, once the judgment is made that a given person is unregenerate and therefore a candidate for evangelism, such as they, they shake up a beer and throw it in your face and say a bunch of nasty things as you're preaching to them on the streets, it's not always as subtle as Shepherd would think. But anyway, Uh, Once you make that judgment that this person is a candidate for evangelism, the evangelist adopts a procedure to secure his regeneration. Shepherd goes on, after the law has done its work of convicting the sinner so that he is utterly humbled before the wrath of God, Jesus is held forth as the one who offers forgiveness on the basis of his death on the cross. So far, so good, we would think. 
while there are obvious biblical motifs evidenced in this preparatory phase, there are also serious questions that have to be raised. For example, if regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit, does not a method of evangelism geared to result in regeneration? This is unbelievable. He's critiquing the idea that we should be seeking people's conversion and regeneration in our evangelism. But this is what he says. If regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit, does not a method of evangelism geared to result in regeneration and the evoking of a corresponding crisis, Acts 2, Pentecost, Peter's sermon, sorry, evoking of a corresponding crisis experience begin to encroach upon the work of the Spirit. So he's saying by preaching the gospel and viewing it as the power of God unto salvation and looking for people to be converted and regenerated and say, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, and embracing them and sharing the truth and, and love of God with them and, and eventually seeing them baptized and profess their faith. That, that he, He's saying this is encroaching upon the work of the Spirit. Now this is, listen to what he says here. This is appalling. To labor for a specific result that is beyond the pastor's power to bring forth can be frustrating, if not even paralyzing. You think? I mean, this guy's teaching at a seminary. It's unbelievable. This is, this is a man, he trained up pastors. And he's saying we shouldn't labor for a specific result that is beyond our power. 2 Corinthians 2.16 comes to mind. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? So yeah, it's frustrating. It's at times paralyzing. But verse 5, Paul says, as ministers of the new covenant by which the law is written on people's heart, verse uh, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit inspired that Scripture. The Holy Spirit says, Use my gospel as the power of God unto salvation. You're insufficient. You're an earthen vessel or a dirt jar. I will supply the power. Labor for something that's beyond the pastor's power. Absolutely. If we're only laboring for what the pastor can do, we're setting our sights extremely low. You know, don't, don't trip over that. To labor for a specific result that is beyond the pastor's power to bring forth can be frustrating if not even paralyzing. Well, that's the nature of evangelism. And someone who claims to be this, this champion of biblical faithfulness and law-keeping and let's just bear the yoke, here comes the frustration and the paralysis and we find, like, not like a shepherd, but like a hireling, he's running in the other direction and leading people in the federal vision in the other direction. I'm going to... Skip number four. You can read that in the outline and look at the point there. I'm I'm hastening to a conclusion here and, and number four is just kind of a caveat. So let's look at number five and see what Shepherd puts in the place of regeneration as the goal of evangelism and as the central focal point of examining yourself and finding assurance and the church viewing you as saved or as showing fruit. Point number five, shepherd replaces the visible fruits of grace with the visible sacraments, especially baptism. Especially baptism. By the way, we say that Rome denies that you can have assurance, but in practice, how many Roman Catholics have we met who are sitting around examining themselves and worried about their faithfulness to the law of God? I haven't met very many, to be honest with you. I doubt you have either. Because Rome's legalism leads to antinomian, get-alongism, feel-good, you're-a-good-person, mumbo-jumbo. And how do they get there? Baptism. You're baptized. Baptism justified you, regenerated you. And so just don't make waves or do anything really bad and you'll be okay. So it's not surprising. Shepherd who claims to be trying to reunite Catholics and Protestants would replace regeneration with 
baptism. Quote, baptism, the sign and seal of the covenant, marks the point of conversion. Baptism is the moment when we see the transition from death to life and a person is saved. Let me stop there. Shepherd is not a Baptist. I wish Shepherd was a Baptist when I read this, right? Because at the very least, if he was a Baptist, because Baptists get into this whole thing, unfortunately, where they're trying to say, well, we want to have a regenerate membership, and everybody who's baptized is regenerate because they've shown the fruit and they profess faith. And, and their, their believer's baptism only mentality actually limits the damage of the idea that every baptized person is regenerate. Because at the very least, they're, they're being presumptuous about people that have shown some degree of fruit. But Shepherd holds to infant baptism. So when he's saying baptism is the point of conversion, the transition from death to life, think about the implications for a church where infants are baptized and go a long time perhaps before you can see some of the visible fruits and now there's this total presumption for every child of of believers throughout the church that oh they're converted they're saved we don't evangelize them we don't point them to christ and use the law of god and so on and so forth baptism marked the point of their conversion anyway let me pick back up this is not to say that baptism accomplishes the transition from death to life or that baptism causes a person to be born again. Cutting in again here. The Baptist would say the same, right? But the fact is, if you're saying that everyone who is baptized has been converted, regardless of whether the baptism did the converting, it's still communicating false assurance, regardless of the mechanics of how it happened. Why is it that, that baptism marks the point of conversion? Well, you could say because God converts every child in infancy at their baptism by the Holy Spirit, not by baptism. But you still end up with the false assurance. So you can, you can gussy it up all you want, but it's, it's really producing the same problem as Romanism. That is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, which is rightly rejected by Reformed churches. He goes on. From the perspective of election, regeneration is the point of conversion. Regeneration, however, is a secret work of the Holy Spirit, and so we do not know when it takes place. We do not have access to the moment of regeneration. What we hear from the converted sinner is a profession of faith. Again, he holds to infant baptism, so he's kind of cloaking it here with this idea of adult baptism. But anyway, uh, what we hear from the converted sinner is a profession of faith, And what we see is his baptism into Christ. Well, I I thought we saw the works that vindicated his claim to faith. I thought we saw the fruit of repentance that John the Baptist talked about. I thought we saw the Apostle Paul. Behold, he prayeth. Fruit of conversion. So, notice as well that Shepherd is focusing on the word regeneration, which is a secret operation of the Spirit at a distinct moment in time. And he's avoiding language to an extent of conversion or effectual calling. And conversion happens over time. It's the fruit of regeneration when God brings about the the flourishing or the, the outgrowth of our faith and repentance. And conversion takes a period of time as a fruit of that instantaneous regeneration. And it's really conversion that we see in these fruits of grace, not so much you know, the wind blowing and the secret work of the Spirit. So he's mischaracterizing it. Again, Shepard, quote, This covenant sign and seal marks his conversion and his entrance into the church as the body of Christ. From the perspective of the covenant, he is united to Christ when he is baptized. When evangelism is oriented to regeneration as the point of transition, rather than to baptism as the mark of transition, it is necessary for the evangelist or pastor to begin by making some kind of judgment with respect to the spiritual condition of those whom he is addressing. If they are perceived to be regenerate, there is no need to say things that would lead to their regeneration. These people must be addressed differently from those who are not perceived to be regenerate and from whom the fruits of regeneration cannot be expected. Now, We would again point back to Shepard's earlier quote, because I think he actually says it well under point number two, that Paul in Ephesians 1 writes from the perspective of observable covenant reality and concludes from the visible faith and sanctity of the Ephesians that they are the elect of God. 
Further down, he says, there is nothing unfortunate about the fact that we do not have insight into the eternal decree of God and therefore cannot make infallible judgments about the elect or reprobate state of people. Paul is right to address the saints and faithful in Ephesus as elect, and at the same time, he is right to warn them against apostasy. So we, we quote Shepherd against himself. It's right for pastors. And from this pulpit, do I preach the gospel to people that have shown visible fruits of repentance and I still confront you with the gospel and urge you to examine yourself and yet build you up with the promises of God to his people? So you, you can be balanced even with these fallible judgments of the fruit of grace. As Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruit. Last quote. In contrast to regeneration evangelism, a methodology oriented to the covenant structure of Scripture and to the Great Commission presents baptism as the transition point from death to life. Baptism marks the entrance into the kingdom of God and the beginning of lifelong training as kingdom subjects. A sinner is not, quote-unquote, really converted until he is baptized. Christians are those who have been baptized. Unbelievers are those who have not been baptized. Baptism is therefore to be understood as of a peace with the total transformation that is salvation. It is the sacramental side of the total renewal, regeneration in the broad sense of both the inner and the outer man, end quote. This sets the stage for what we're going to see in the federal vision, the legalism that leads to the tweaking of the law, the reducing of the difficult work of self-examination and of church evaluation of confession of faith and reducing it to this antinomianism where nobody can make any judgments, so if you're baptized, you're A-OK. That's Shepherd's antinomian views, and we are over time, but I will take maybe one or two questions if you have them. Yes. Right, so God is pleased by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. So God's not offended that we're encroaching on the work of His Spirit. He's pleased that preaching would be the seed of regeneration, uh, which is, uh, what is it, Second Peter, or no, First Peter chapter 1, the gospel which was preached to you, the seed of regeneration. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Any idea why you would be speaking so much out of two sides of Yes. Why is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Because he's trying to unite Protestants and Roman Catholics. That's why he has to speak. He's trying to be the, the only mediator between truth and error. And unfortunately, that's just not possible. So, uh, yeah, he's trying to unite light and darkness. So on the one hand, he's, he's trying to cater to both sides. And what he ends up with is sort of a mongrel hybrid of legalism and antinomianism. I would also say that if you want to find a uniting element, heresy just always involves imposing ourselves. So I'm really upset that people don't obey God, so justification by faithful obedience. But I'm really feeling bad for some people that are struggling with assurance, so we'll tweak that too. And they just kind of go through, and as doctrines and issues come up, they just kind of shave off and and sand off the rough edges here and there and and whatever they think should be emphasized. And so that's what I think you have with Shepard and the Federal Vision, perhaps, is people that just cannot help but assert themselves, like they accuse Luther of doing. Oh, he just made it all about his own assurance and introspection, but actually that's what they seem to be doing. By the way, Shepard as well has seems to have flocked with some of the movements that would seek to impact Christian culture with the Bible, and it's possible there's always the danger that we're tempted to try to unite Protestants and Catholics so that we can have a bigger voting block. That's another possibility as well. All right, last question. Uh, I just want to add quickly the reason that I think that they tend to antinomianism um, is because they're making justification contingent on their obedience. So they have to make obedience law attainable. So they change what that obedience is and fall into antinomianism. 
Right. So if you make the law the basis of your right standing with God, eventually you're going to be tempted to dumb it down to something you can keep, like, oh, I was circumcised, or oh, I was baptized, and so on. That's a good point. Very helpful. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for that blessed assurance that believers ordinarily enjoy through your gracious promise applied to our hearts, received by faith, looking to Christ, and through the work of your Spirit in our lives. And also, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. Help us as we worship you, as we sit under your word, as we meditate on your statutes and on your promises, that the Spirit would use these things to say to our soul, I am your salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.